We began last Lord's Day in Psalm 132, uh, the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. I want us to read through the psalm, and then we'll come back and review and pick up where we left off. Psalm 132, Lord, remember David in all his afflictions, and how he swore unto the Lord, and how and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob. Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed, I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Lo, we heard it at Eprata, we found it in the fields of the wood. He's speaking of the Ark of the Covenant. We will go into his tabernacles, we will worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou and the Ark of thy strength. Let thy priest be clothed with righteousness, and let thy saints shout for joy. For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore. For the Lord hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priest with salvation. That's the answer to the request that he made over in, uh, in verse uh, 11, in verse uh, we was praying for the priest in, in verse 8 and 9. I will clothe her priest with salvation, and her saints will, shall shout aloud for joy. There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. So we've noted this psalm is divided into two parts. The first ten verses tell us of David's desire, what he wanted to do, his great desire to build a house for the Lord. And the second part is God's response or God's promise. We love to see the Lord's response to our prayers. And here, as we do throughout the Psalms, not often see only the request, but God's response to those requests. We see David's deep desire, his lifelong desire, his sincerity. You can't miss his sincerity here of wanting to build a house. Godly desires, though, are often beset with affliction. And uh, as I think of the Apostle Paul, said, there's a great door and effectual open to me, but many adversaries. So any project, any effort to serve the Lord will be met with afflictions, not only from within and without, and we must expect that. And the Bible mentions that in verse 1, and all his afflictions. All manner of trials will come against David in the attempt to keep him from becoming king. We've noted how he ran from Saul in all those years of exile, and even after he became king, rebellion within the kingdom, his own sinfulness, and these things that could have driven him from the throne. But even more, the word here for afflictions is really the word anxious care. Now that brings it a little closer to home. You might have breathed a sigh of relief and said, well, I haven't had any of those afflictions, but none of us are exempt from anxious care, worrying over the what-ifs, and uh, what we don't know, the unknowns, above all his problems and cares, the overwhelming and the most pressing of these problems upon his heart and mind 
was to build a house for Jehovah. David had a lavish home, and he felt guilty, not just guilt for having a place and the Lord not having one, but the Lord didn't ask him, did he? And God has his own will. In fact, he tells us in the scriptures, you can't build a house that will hold me. The heavens cannot contain me. The earth is my footstool. How strange it would be for us to think that God could be reduced to dwelling in a building. All of his wars, David was involved with wars. All of his work and all of his money, all of his efforts went into the amassing of the material to build the temple. And so we, we, did, we see that he just didn't have a desire. I speak with people all the time that I'd love to do something for the Lord. I have these desires. But they never make preparation. They never dig ditches for the rain they're praying for. They never gather the pots for the oil. They never really make provision for it. They long and may even pray, but forget there's more to it than that. And while David never got an answer before this time, uh, to, to a certain time, he did gather the materials. He uh, invited the help of others. And he amassed the great wealth that it would take to build the temple. That's what we call putting feet to our prayers. And while we should pray and ask the Lord to do what he alone can do, we are expected to go out and do our part. Uh, when the Lord performed that great miracle of turning the water into wine, they were to gather their small water pots, go to the well, and make trip after trip after trip to fill those huge vats, those big containers, with water. And then the miracle came. We see almost always there is something to do when God's about to do something. He does his part, which we cannot do, but he also gives us our part. Is there manna miraculously provided? It will not benefit us if we don't go out and gather it. And so David is doing his part. In verses 2 through 6, he restates and immortalizes his pledge to build a house for the Lord. This promise is stated in three ways. We notice his truthfulness in the matter. He says, I, he swore unto the Lord. He vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob. A vow is a very serious thing, and yet we should be serious about our vows, and we should make vows to the Lord. In other words, he promised himself over to the God of Jacob. We remember Jacob, when he wrestled with the Lord in prayer, and said, I will not let thee go till thou bless me. He had been on run, running from the Lord, and there he promised the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a promise. In Genesis 28, verse 20, Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me, will keep me in his way, that I go, I will give, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on. This stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth to thee. We see several interesting things there in Jacob's prayer in Genesis 28. The mention of the tenth, the tithe of giving to the Lord. Which is not the first time we see it. Abraham is tithed, hasn't he? We see that in his returning from the wars with the marauding kings and the, when they took captive and in exile Lot and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. But also, Jacob says, he sets up this stone and says, this is the house of the Lord. Now, if you were to walk by and see those rough stones that Jacob had set aside, you wouldn't say, well, this is a temple. Look at this beautiful church building. And yet, this house for the Lord is a place. And places in the scripture are very important. They're called, they're names of places, Bethel, uh, other places we see throughout, we'll see this morning as we study uh, Abraham's life, Jehovah Jireh, he called that place, the Lord will provide. 
David praised this vow of Jacob to the God of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when Jacob was about to be founder of the Hebrew nation. He was the physical father of the 12 tribes that would become Israel. In a similar way, as Jacob, the founder of the tribes, if you will, so David is the founder of the temple. He promises his tireless efforts uh, in verses 3 and 4. I will not go to, surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. Now these are, we might say, holy exaggerations. We know that David had to go home and that he went to bed. But it describes for us his tireless effort and to, to seek the Lord's face and to do his part of establishing a house for the Lord. Someone has said that those who achieve great things for the kingdom of God or the cause of Christ must have tireless zeal. And I would say one of the things missing today in the church is zeal. We see apathy everywhere, the status quo. We, we see the Laodicean uh, woes of being lukewarm, not too hot, not too cold, just right. But just right is not right in God's sight, is it? And so he wants us to be burning for him on zeal, a zealousness for the Lord. This one thing I do, the scripture tells us. Now, we think about that in our own lives, and, and zeal is something that must be prayed for. We must do our part. I have found that when you get busy about something, the zeal will come. If we sit and wait for the feeling or whatever it is, and zeal may be hard to, to describe, but we know that... It, we see it in the scripture as unction and other ways of describing it. Yet we know when it's missing, when things are unremarkable and lackluster, and nothing about the Lord's work and his workers should be that way. He was tireless in this pursuit. Are we tireless in our part of the vineyard for what God has given us to do in his will and his work? Verse 5 says, Until I found, find out a place for the Lord. And habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Now, it would take years and years, as we've seen, to find this place. Wars will have to be fought. There will be pestilence. There will be problems in the kingdom. At last, he found the place, Mount Moriah, a place where there's a series of mountains there. We have studied about Abraham offering Isaac there. And also Calvary, all those hills right around in Jerusalem is referred to in that, that, that place. But we see there in verses 6 and 7, he says, Lo, we have heard of it in Ephrata. We found it in the fields of the wood. Now, David's dream has spread throughout the kingdom. It's one thing to have a vision or a dream or a desire. And some godly desires are to be kept to ourselves, but something of this magnitude is going to have to have help. It will take many hands to help bring this to pass. And as David began to share his vis vision, his, his leaders, the tribes of Israel, the priests and all, the word began to spread throughout the kingdom that the king wants to build a temple. And so the people catch upon that. And that, that dream, if you will, that goal, that vision, without a vision of people perish, spreads throughout the, the kingdom. And one thing they knew, they would have to locate the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it seems unthinkable for us, to us, that they didn't know where it was or that it wasn't nearby, near the king. A search was made for the Ark of the Covenant. For some reason, it had been hidden away, put away. I'm sure you've hidden away something important, a birth certificate or a ring or some uh, 
a certificate of deposit or something, and you put it in a place where, you, where nobody could find it. And that's exactly what happened. Nobody could find it, not even you. I was sitting in a doctor's office the other day, and you're not trying to overhear, but people in other rooms were talking, and I heard this, uh, this woman, a nurse, say that um, she had lost all of her jewelry. And they'd called the insurance company, they'd called the police, they had called, she'd had workers in the house that, the week before and had the, the, them all questioned. I mean, it was a big deal. It was several, several thousand dollars worth of jewelry. And months went by and she was telling her friend, and do you know where I found it? All that jewelry was in a sock in the bottom of my sock drawer. And the, woman, the other woman said, why would you put it there? She said, well, that's where I hide things. And she, she, but she went through all of that and uh, had to call the insurance company, had to call and apologize to, to everybody that, that she had accused and thought evil of. But all of us can at some time or point have hidden something that not, the burglars couldn't find it and the people who owned it couldn't find it either. Well, the search went out and the, the, he says, lo, we have heard it in Ephrata. Rumors circulated that the ark was somewhere in the land of Ephraim in a temporary shelter. It was viewed more as a relic uh, or a thing of superstition or dread of or, or a thing because of those who had been stricken dead because of touching it. Remember Uzzah and his family. And so instead of a thing of delight, and I'm sure they finally decided, let's just put it here and leave it alone until we get further instruction and don't bother this, this ark. It's amazing that the most important symbol of the Jews and Jehovah's relationship with them was lingering in a state of forgotten neglect. This speaks of revival, doesn't it? The most important things to us, the secret place, the place of meeting with the Lord in private and private worship is often neglected. And even corporate worship, those things that we know are sacred and precious are sometimes shrouded off, hidden away, and forgotten. This ark was the symbol of the very presence of God, this wooden box overlaid in gold with the angels on top of it with their wings overspreading them. And there on the lid, if you will, was where the blood was offered on the Day of Atonement. How could this be? How could the ark be shut away in obscurity for so long? Well, if we search our own hearts and do survey work we wonder sometimes we'll come across some uh, in our papers we'll find a, a prayer list that we thought well wait, where has that been or some things that we have started uh, some studies that we have begun maybe a letter we started a list of people we're going to visit those we're trying to see saved and all of a sudden it gets piled away or stacked on top of and it's forgotten david instituted an all-out search for it and, you know, I've found that we usually find what we're looking for. And so it is in the spiritual realm. God has promised, hasn't he? It, you will find me if you search with me for, with all your heart. All that seek me will find me. And so we need to send out a massive search, a ransacking, if you will. Remember the woman who lost the coin? She swept the house and lit the candle and searched it. It's like losing a diamond out of your ring, uh, something very important. Well, those things are important, need emphasis put to them and arousing up and, and a, a preaching to ourselves and taking ourselves up by the, the collar and say, get with it and let's get back things back in line. There they found it at Kerjath-Jerim, the forest city. 
And they exclaim, we found it in the fields of the wood. First Chronicles 13, 5. There it was, long neglected, where they left it. Where did Mary and Joseph found the Lord Jesus? Where they left him, we always do. Go back, say, Lord, search me and try me and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way. Show me what I've left off. Show me the unfinished business. And if we'll stay there long enough, the Holy Spirit will show us and answer that prayer. There it was, long neglected, under a tent, beneath some trees in a forest. It should have been the center of Israel's national life. I thought, could not help but think about the most important thing, that place of meeting, the, the mercy seat, the place of meeting where God met with his people in the propitiation of sins. And we have met the Lord in, in salvation at Christ, and yet that meeting is not just an isolated event somewhere in, in our past. It is the beginning of an ongoing seeking of the Lord and searching his face and his ways and of putting off sin and starting uh, new projects and, uh, for him and uh, new avenues of service, an ongoing outworking of what the Lord has worked within us. We notice there in verse 8 what the psalmist brings before the Lord. Arise, O Lord, unto thy rest, thou in the ark of thy strength. Solomon used this same phrasing when he prays his dedicatory prayer. Years later, the temple is finished, that gleaming, glistening, glorious building. In 2 Chronicles six forty one, one of the longest prayers in the Bible, if not the longest. And it's one you ought to visit often and use it as a pattern. There's no better pattern of a prayer for praise and seeking the Lord's face than Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple. Arise, O Lord, into thy resting place, thou in the ark of thy strength. Now, when King Hezekiah rededicated the temple, he might have used the same words, though in his day the Shekinah glory cloud of the Lord's presence had not yet departed from the temple. Think of the long silence God endures through the years of Ahaz and his predecessors. They not only neglected the temple... They set up altars to heathen and pagan gods, and they filled all the rooms about the temple with all trash of all kinds and debris and articles and relics. It defies our imagination how and why the Lord endured this treatment for so long, and yet he did. It defies our imagination of how long-suffering he is with us, though, doesn't it? Oh, when we come back from that stupor of being off on our own or forgetting the Lord or a, a back, time of backsliding, we wonder how could the Lord be with us? How could he endure us? How could he put up with us? And he endures long. One of the, the characteristic, uh, characteristics of our Lord is long-suffering. And aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad of his mercy and his grace? John Phillips writes that God should have sat there on the mercy seat through those dark days of apostasy, those apostasy-ridden years, and not have destroyed the temple, Jerusalem and the nation in one fiery holocaust is a tribute to his patience and grace. And it is, isn't it? Can you imagine Jehovah daily uh, jealous of his glory, daily enduring the, the, the snide remarks and the treatment of his people, relics being brought into the temple, the anterooms being packed up with trash, altars and of idols, crowding in around the things of God, you would think that God would just, in his uh, wrath, have destroyed the whole place. Well, Hezekiah could use the words of Solomon after he cleansed the temple. He restored the true and prescribed word-based worship to assure the Lord that now he could rest. 
The temple had been cleansed. You know, in cleansing, there's not just inward cleansing. And there's not just outward cleansing, but there's both. Things pile up. Sins that need to be repented of. But yet there are practices and sometimes things associated with those practices that must be dealt with, carted off, and forever gotten away from. And the temple had been cleansed, and it was a literal house cleaning, wasn't it? And so should we. We should have an inner cleansing of the temple. But sometimes those things around us need to be dealt with as well. The work of purifying and rededicating the temple was finished. In verse 9 we see, Let thy priest be clothed with righteousness, and thy saints shout for joy. Hezekiah could clean, clean the building, couldn't he? He could remove the debris and tear down the false idols, but he could not make God's priests righteous. And by the way, they weren't righteous just because they were born into the Aaronic family. He could reinstate the priesthood. He could line up the Levites and said, practice and get your choirs and your instruments tuned and get back into to line. He could say, we're going to reinstitute. We found the ark. We're going to reinstitute these things. But he could not make them righteous. The wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God, James tells us. Although he could have, his, have a holy indignation about the decline of the priest. We'd have to wonder, the Levites, whose job it was to carry the furniture and to make, transport things back and forth, why didn't they know where it was? Why weren't the priests doing uh, their jobs? And so, even though he reinstated the ministry of the, the Levites and the priesthood, he could not clothe them in righteousness. This is something only God can do. You can call a pastor, you can have a choir, you can have people in place, but only God, only the Holy Spirit of God can bless his word and his work. It is not talent, it is not education, it is not any of those things that he can use, but often in spite of those things, he does his will and his way. But we can pray. What can you do for your pastor? You can pray that he would be clothed in righteousness that the Lord would do a work in his heart, that the Lord would put a coal of, uh, hot coal off the altar upon his lips. Only the Lord can do that. But we're, our responsibility is to pray and ask him to do just that. And as we cleanse ourselves and do business with the Lord with his word, and ask the, the word, you're clean to the word that I've spoken to you, pray that for your pastor, for your church leaders. He had pled with them to be made right with the Lord, but that's all he could do. He prayed that the Lord would make her, his saints shout for joy. But uh, they had gone through much fear and war and deprivation. And now it was time to be filled with joy and to fill the hearts of God's people. In David's day, when he looked forward to building the house of the Lord, he brought up the Ark of the Covenant from the wilderness to Jerusalem. In First Chronicles fifteen twenty-eight, Thus all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant, of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the cornet, with the trumpets and with cymbals, making a noise with psalteries and harps. Now, it is true that God had ordained the building of the ark. It is true that he had instituted the Levites and the priesthood. But you see, anything can devolve into superstition and idolatry. And though they had a great parade and could have called it revival, we found the ark, we've brought it back, and uh, well, while we should do all that we can to make things right and put things into place, that activity alone does not uh, inst inst institute revival, does not mean that the Lord has heard. In fact, they should have done all that, 
But we see this shouting and praising and the cornet sounding and the trumpets and the cymbals and the, the psalteries uh, bringing the ark to Jerusalem. In verse 10, we see his heartfelt desire. For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. Now, Hezekiah is childless. And he needed a son to carry out God's promise to David. You remember the promise made to David, we call the Davidic covenant, and the title of our lesson today was an unconditional promise to David. I will, I've chosen you, I'll put you on the throne. And he gave the promises concerning the Messiah to David. Now Hezekiah had been sick unto death, and uh, the prophet told Isaiah, came to see him, the preacher came to his house and told him to get ready to die. And he turned away his face to the wall, King Hezekiah did, in absolute despair. Not unlike Abraham of old, the promise that there would be a royal seed on the throne, and yet he was childless. And how could this be? How could he die? If he died, this certainly would end God's promise, he thought. This could not be true. I cannot die. As he turned his face to the wall, you can imagine how he faced that death sentence. It couldn't end like this, Hezekiah thought. And he, he had... Hezekiah didn't plead his own name or all that he'd done to revive or renew the temple like we would have been inclined to do. Lord, is this what I get after all this work? I've reinstated the true worship. I have cleaned out the temple from idols. And some, some people have said, I've heard people say, I'm trying to serve the Lord. I've gotten right with the Lord. And then all this, you see, as if it's some kind of bargaining. We do our part and God is supposed to bless us according. And we want to pigeonhole God. But Hezekiah didn't do that. He knew that all was at the mercy of God and that he was even alive. For any second was, was God's mercy. So he pleaded David's name, the man after God's own heart. Hezekiah pled the name of David because David was the greatest name he knew. The greatest of the kings. And there were, was none likened to him. And when you and I go before the Lord to plead our cause or to intercede on behalf of someone else, we plead a name, don't we? We come to the, our gracious Heavenly Father in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's not just rigmarole in wordage. We're coming to a God who can do all things because of what our Savior has done to make us able to come. Yes, we're to come boldly before his throne of grace and ask for uh, mercy and, and the things that we need, and by prayer and supplication make all of our requests known to the Lord. Yes, we're to do that. But the reason we can do that is because we come in the name of our Savior, and we, we plead our case before Him, cast down because of our circumstances, lack of fruit, obvious failures. We plead a name that is greater than any other name known to man. Whose name do we plead? We plead the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then we come to the last half of Psalm 132, beginning there in verse 11. We see that the Lord himself is the speaker. He begins to answer the prayer. He guarantees several things to David and to David's descendants. First, we see the Lord's integrity there in verse 11. The Lord hath sworn how? In truth unto David. All God can do is truth. He is truth. And so what he says is true, and what he does is right. And the Lord's integrity cannot be questioned. Now, sometimes our feelings may say, Lord, this can't be right. Sure, as Abraham lifted the dagger, he felt like this is not right. Everything against him was 
in him was against it. And yet he had always prayed, had he not, that shall not the judge of all the earth do right. And so the Lord has sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. When God makes a promise, he will not turn from it. You can say amen right there. Put a star by it. And I would say, underline those verse, that, those words, if not in your Bible, in your heart. He will not turn from it. In him is there, there's no shadow of turning with thee, we sing. When they, so we sing that song, Great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies I see. There is no shadow of turning with thee. I will do it. I will not turn from it, he says. And so it is with every promise of God. Hezekiah had honored God's house, the temple. And now God takes care of the the house. There's another meaning of the word house, and that's dynasty. We speak of the house of Windsor to describe the the ruling house of the royal family in, in England and other places, the house of whoever, Hanover. And so there's a physical house in view here, but we must not forget the dynasty, the household, the descendants of Hezekiah. God would make good his promise, and he could not be questioned. And God's word guaranteed that, uh, that to, to Hezekiah, but God had sworn to David. It was not possible that God's integrity could fail. You might as well talk about the sun falling out of the sky, burning up, or, the, uh, or anything else as to talk about God's... And if the sun fell tomorrow, God's integrity would still stand, wouldn't it? Let God be true and every man a liar. Well... It was not God's, possible for God's integrity to fail. How bold of Hezekiah to write anew into his psalm the solemn pledge and promise of God. He was still childless. Well, we see the Lord's intention there in the latter part of verse 11. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. If. Oh, what a big word that little word is. If. The hinges of this promise to Hezekiah, this renewed promise, that had first come to David, and now uh, to Solomon and his descendants has had a condition put to it. What was an unconditional promise to David is now has an if put to it. What is, what is the if? if? The if is the hinges upon which the door of the promise swings. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore. What a, what a promise. What a statement. What does it mean? Well, the promise to David concerning the establishment and the maintenance of David's dynasty on the throne of Israel was unconditional. In the background of that is 2 Samuel chapter 7. However, when that promise was renewed to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 14, a condition was added. Now, remember, God sovereignly made the, the promise in the, 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 the uh, covenant himself. So when God makes the covenant, he can do what he wants to. To David, it was an unconditional covenant. When he repeats it to Solomon, a condition was added to the original contract. In other words, Solomon and his descendants must walk in obedience to God. It's not very much to ask, is it, if you're representing God, to walk in obedience to his word. To be the the king of a a theocracy, what was supposed to have been a theocracy, the least the king could do. Remember the king was told in Deuteronomy 17, you know what his first duties was to do? Although we don't know how many or if any did it. 
if you look back in Deuteronomy, it's a very important portion of Scripture. And let's look back there and see what the kings were supposed to do. There, there's no reason. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and look in verse 18. There's no excuse whatsoever for them not to walk in the ways of the Lord. Why? Deuteronomy 17 verse 18 says this. God foretold and gave what a king should do. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priest of the Levites. Remember, the Levites made perfect copies of God's word. If they, if they made a mistake, they'd have to start all over, no matter how far along they were. They washed their hands and changed their clothes when they came to the name of Jehovah. The king was to get one of those copies and copy out a copy of the law for himself, his own personal copy. Why? It shall be with him, verse 19 says. And he shall read therein every once in a while. Or once a year. No, all the days of his life. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God. To keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. You see, it was no new thing that God expected his kings to be the leader of the country. Not just by right or by lineage or by God's allowance but by example. And he not only should physically copy out a copy of the scriptures, the word of God. Can you imagine if all of our legislators, congressmen, were required to copy out the Constitution? Don't you think that'd be a good job? That Somebody ought to write a law that they'd have to do that. Maybe they'd learn some things. We wonder sometimes if any of them have read any of it. I think they ought to have to copy out the Declaration of Independence by hand. And the entire Constitution. Well, you say, well, that's a ridiculous thing. Well, God didn't think it was too ridiculous for his king to do that. What if presidents, what if on the inauguration day, they had to set about uh, from then that the first line of business was to copy out the Constitution. Well, you may say, well, that's a frivolous, silly thing. Well, the covenant that God m made with them was based on their obedience. And they need to know what God said and what he expected. And so... We see this condition, this conditional aspect of the covenant reflected in Psalm 132, verse 12. Must have haunted Hezekiah. He did not know what kind of a son he was going to have, but he knew this. He knew what kind of father he had been, what kind of father he had had. And he, of course, he was not a father yet, but he knew what kind of father he'd had, a weak father, a wicked man. And one of Hezekiah's descendants was a man by the name of Jehoiachin. He's also referred to as Jeconiah in the scripture. And sometimes his name is reduced to Kaniah. So when you see the name Jehoiachin and Jeconiah and Kaniah, these are all one and the same. Well, we have nicknames and part of names. And, you know, sometimes you'll see somebody's name and it's not even what they're called or it's part of their name. And so there's nothing new about that. This man, Jeconiah, brought God's curse on the line of Solomon. He was only 18 years old when he came to the throne, and he reigned for only three months, but it was long enough to see what kind of king he would be. He was carried off by Nebuchadnezzar in the deportation and exile to Babylon, and Jeremiah the prophet called him this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol. That's what Jeremiah said of him. Well, none of Jeconiah's sons sat on the throne of David. In, in him, the, the royal line of Messiah, the royal line of Christ through Solomon came to an end. Well, 
I thought the promise said that Messiah would come from the line of, of David. If it comes to an end through Solomon, what, how is this going to be? How will the scripture be fulfilled? What about Matthew chapter 1 and Luke that gives us the lineage in the, of, of our Lord? The Lord Jesus by birth was not a son of David through Solomon. He was not born of that branch of the Davidic family. Joseph was. Jesus' earthly guardian was from that line. But Joseph was not the father of Jesus, was he? Christ claimed the throne through a collateral line. David had two sons that lived from Bathsheba, Solomon, through whom the regal line is traced to Joseph in Matthew's gospel. We're about to enter the Christmas season. So when you read the Christmas story in Matthew, that's Joseph's lineage. And it's accurate, and he was an heir all the way in in the line of David uh, through Solomon. But they had another son by the name of Nathan. And isn't it interesting that David would have named a son Nathan? Remember who came knocking at his door during that after that long year when David had sinned and uh, committed such grievous crimes? The prophet, the preacher, came calling, and his name was Nathan. You remember Nathan? He gave that story to David, and David got enraged, and Nathan had to do what only truth could do, and he said, "David, you're the man." And it's always been amazing to me that David would have named a son. I'm assuming here, all I know is that there was a name of the son, Nathan, and Nathan came, that David must have named this son after the faithful and godly, faithful the wounds of a friend, a true friend, who told David what he needed to hear. Now, Nathan, through whom the legal line is traced to Mary in Luke, Jesus was to be the seed of the woman, the scripture tells us. And so you see how perfect in every area, every prophecy and every word of the scripture is. It was through Mary that he inherited his right to be Israel's king. Although when Mary uh, named Joseph, uh, married Joseph, the two lines, the legal line and the regal line, if you will, uh, were joined as well. And so we could argue that he was of the line of David on either side. And God kept faith with David. He, he kept his promise. Remember I told you to underline uh, those words that he said he will not, he will not turn a fa- uh, he will not turn away the face of his anointed. And so God kept faith with David and remained true to his warning to Solomon. Hezekiah didn't know all of this. He did know that the Davidic line through Solomon had already been uh, badly tarnished. But he did not live to see how dreadfully it would be tarnished by his own yet-to-be-born son, Manasseh. Well, then we see the promise about the temple. Look there in verse 13. The Lord told David three things about the temple and about the site, the location of the temple. First of all, in verse 13, we see it was a chosen place. God always chooses beforehand. He never does anything happenstance or off the the cuff, just... uh, just capriciously or without planning. This was a chosen site. The Lord had chosen Zion. He had desired it for an habitation. And twice we're told of his desire for this spot. Now, it's very interesting to me that, that the creator of the universe, who holds all things in his, by the word of his power, has a desire for a specific spot. That there's a place on this speck of dirt the speck of sand that we call earth and all the glory of our Father. 
that he has a desired spot. Well, it was a chosen place. The word Zion here is a precious word. It's used in the Old Testament to refer to the city, to the, to the people of God. Even today, Zionist, the Zionist movement. But in our thinking, in the scripture, it refers to all of the Lord's work. Even the New Jerusalem, it includes heaven. And when we think about marching to Zion, we're not thinking about making a privilege pilgrimage to the earth of Jerusalem. We're thinking about going to heaven to be with the Lord. And so Zion is a word that covers a lot of territory. It's used figuratively and specifically. Uh, here it's used in the broadest sense as including Moriah where the temple was actually built. It was to Zion that David brought the ark and found a place for it pending the final settlement of the ark on Moriah. God didn't forget David's thoughtful act. Verse 14 tells us that it is a, a sacred place. I will abundantly bless her provision. In verse 15, I will satisfy her poor with bread. In verse 14, this is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. And then we see in verses 13 through 15, deal with, with Zion in the sanctuary here. And I think it takes on a millennial dimension we believe in the literal words of Scripture. The Bible says his saints will rule with him for a thousand years and that Messiah will come and reestablish his throne in Jerusalem and rule a, a glorious thousand-year rule of Christ where all wrong will be put down and he will rule majestically and that will enter in the eternal day. They anticipate the day when Jesus will make Jerusalem and Zion the center of a world empire. It will be a plain for everybody that God's blessing rests on the place that he has chosen for himself. Well, we might say, why that place? Why not some glorious place like New York or Washington or Paris? We might, humanly speaking, think of some other place. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. God has chosen a place, a specific place. Now, we know that place today is the center of, of much attention, isn't it? And controversy and confusion. It is a veritable powder keg between Muslims and Jews and, and Christians. And, and uh, we wonder, how in the world could any of this ever be brought to pass? It seems as if Satan has a stronghold on that very place. And there's so much confusion and disagreement and dis uh, difference of opinion about whose is what. We wonder, only Jesus himself could straighten all of that out. Well, we see in verse 16 God's promise regarding his saints. I will also clothe her priests with salvation. Remember he prayed that they be made righteous? And God is answering the prayer. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout for joy. This was the direct answer to Hezekiah's prayer that Zion's priests might be clothed with righteousness. It was a worthy prayer. Before a man can minister as a priest, he must be right with God and right with man. Before he can be righteous, however, he must be saved. This is an act, a legal act, where God clears the guilty and makes him righteous. No righteousness of our own, self-righteousness. Righteousness apart from salvation is self-righteousness, something God hates. In verses 17 through 18, we see the, uh, uh, the provision regarding the temple site. It will become a central point for for vitality. Look there in verse 17. There will I make the horn of David to bud. Assurance is given that Hezekiah will have a son, a bud, an heir to David's throne. A bud has great promise for the future, but in itself is small and insignificant. 
Hezekiah's son would amount to no more than that, just a promise, a could be, would have, just a bud. He would not not do anything for the Lord. In contrast, the Holy Spirit describes Messiah as a branch. One of Isaiah's favorite terms concerning the coming of the Messiah is a branch. And Hezekiah had no, no doubt heard his friend refer to the Messiah in this way. In that day, Isaiah writes in chapter 4, verse 2, shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious. Verse 17, the latter part, tells us that light would shine there. I have ordained a lamp for my anointed. In the Old Testament, a lamp is the symbol of, of the continuing existence of God's will and purpose. In Genesis 15, verse 7, we see that it was used when God formally signed the contract with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. In Isaiah 62, in verse 1, no doubt speaking of the millennial kingdom, for Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth, and the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all thy kings thy glory. Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, was to plunge the land into worse darkness than it had ever been before. Hezekiah did not know that, but God did. He knows the end from the beginning, doesn't he? He knows all things. And faithful to his purpose, God gave Hezekiah assurance that a lamp would remain alight until the dawning of the holy of the new day. Indeed, the holy city will, will become the center of all life and vitality for a thousand years. And finally, the chosen place in the holy city will be the place of victory. His enemies, verse 18, will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. So we end this psalm, this eulogy, if you will, of God's covenant with David, upon which Hezekiah pinned his hopes, and which indeed is the only hope for the world. We're looking for the coming of the Messiah. We're about to celebrate his birth when he came into the world the first time. But I'm looking for the promise that he said, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, What's the next on the list? I will come again. Praise his holy name. Let us pray. Now, Lord, thank you for your holy and infallible word. Teach it to us and accomplish all that you desire in our hearts because of it. In Jesus' precious name, amen.